This is a WTOP original podcast. Welcome to another episode of The Vine Guy. I'm your host, Scott Greenberg, and in this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of being in person with Jeff Morgan, the owner and producer and winemaker at Covenant Wines. Now, Jeff is the owner and founding winemaker of Covenant Wines, a boutique urban winery in Berkeley, California. We'll talk about that in a minute. Making small lot fine wines from California and Israel. Covenant Wines are made from exceptional vineyards that stretch from Napa Valley, Sonoma, Lake County, and Lodi in Northern California to the Galilee and Golan Heights in Israel. Boy, that's covering a lot of territory. (laughs) Not only is Jeff the owner and winemaker at Covenant, he is also a professional saxophonist, cookbook author, and by the way, he's written 10 cookbooks, a former instructor at the Culinary Institute of America, a.k.a. the CIA in Napa Valley, and was the West Coast editor of Wine Spectator magazine from 1992 to 1999. That's heady stuff. In 2003, Jeff partnered with the famed Leslie Rudd to found Covenant Wines, wines that break the paradigm of kosher wine. In fact, Covenant Wines have been highly praised by Robert Parker, who called them the finest kosher wines on planet Earth, and by Jancis Robinson, who stated that Jeff has made, quote, the best kosher wine I have ever tasted. High praise indeed, Jeff. Welcome to the Vine Guy podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you, Scott, and it's a pleasure to be here, and you said it so well, I don't know if I really have anything to add. What? <laughs> That's the shortest part. Let's just, let's just go to the drinking. Yes. No, no, we can't do that. I have questions for you. Okay. So, uh, listen, I, I've got to ask, since you're the only uh, commercial winemaker, at least that I'm aware of, uh, who's ever really reviewed wines for the likes of the Wine Spectator, uh, why are you, why did you decide to make wine after reviewing wines for so many years? Well, um, that's a good question, Scott. In fact, most people don't know that I was making wine before I went to the Wine Spectator. I actually was uh, uh, a seller and a vineyard guy. I mean, I was uh, just a hired hand at uh, a winery in Long Island, New York, starting in 1988. And it was the North Fork of Long Island. And uh, we were growing... Chardonnay and Cabernet Merlot, a little bit of Cabernet Franc. I worked with Michel Warland out there. I worked with some really extraordinary individuals, Dick Smart, the famous viticulturist, Larry Perrine, who runs a winery out there in the Hamptons called, um, um, what is Larry's winery called? It's Channing Daughters. I learned a lot as a cellar guy and a vineyard guy uh, for about three years. uh, it's true. Before that, I was a, I was a saxophone player. I was trained classically as a flutist in France, which is where I got into wine. Back oh, so we say flautist. We don't. We say <laughs> flutist. Um, I think the Brits say flautist, but in America and in France, we say flutiste or flutist. Okay. Anyway, as I, as I, uh, I I've said to a number of people during my, my visit here to Utah, where I'm having a great time, by the way, I said that... Uh, my first lunch at the French National Conservatory in Nice when I was 19 uh, was a window to all of the great tastes uh, that I had never had growing up as a kid in New York, Manhattan, 
You know, I, I went, it was a 50 cent lunch, government subsidized. I took my celery remoulade, I got my whole fish, I had a little cheese course, and then they said, would you like a split of wine, I realized. And I said, they said, that would be an extra franc. So for an extra 25 cents, I got a, I got a little bottle of wine, and I... You know that story about Dom Perignon, how he saw stars when yeah, he, you yeah, know, very famous. well, I took the bite of celery remoulade, a little piece of my fish, or I didn't even know how to eat it. It was a full whole fish. And I took a sip of that wine and I saw culinary stars. And I realized at that very moment, I was 19, that I was going to spend all of my time in France exploring the culinary delights of that nation. And maybe I was going to learn how to play better music too. And what I didn't know at the time is that I was going to stay for five years. So um, I had a lot of time to taste, and, uh, and, I, and I, I learned how to be a musician too. And ultimately, I became the band leader at the Grand Casino in Monte Carlo. I worked for a guy named Prince Rainier, and, uh, and I had a great band, American band. And uh, one day I just realized I was more interested in what I was drinking after the gig every night than I was interested in what I was playing. So I decided to become a winemaker. Wow, what a storied life. Now, yeah. I normally ask a couple of questions at the end of the interview, but you've now kind of popped the cherry, so to speak, early. Uh, was that your aha moment? Oh, definitely. That, that 75 cent lunch in the student restaurant at the conservatory, actually it was at the, uh, the university, which was right next to the conservatory, blew my mind, changed my whole perception of what life is about. So the other question I normally would probably reserve towards the end, but you know, I'm just fascinated. Here you are uh, writing for the Wine Spectator for uh, those years in the 90s. I gotta ask, what do you think about the wine rating game? I know that's a loaded question. It's an easy answer. Are you ready? I am. You're not the first person to ask that. Listen, it's a double-edged sword. You know, I think Wine Spectator, Bob Parker, really hit the nail on the head in understanding what was gonna draw the American public into uh, a greater appreciation of wine. They had to make it kind of like a spectator sport and or like grades in school because we didn't have a culture uh, of wine the way they do in France or even in, 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 in the UK and other France and Spain, whatever. So by giving the American public something they could hang on to, to understand the value, the inherent value of a wine in a language they spoke the rating game, they were able to draw in, uh, they created what I call the, the American wine renaissance. And so I think the scores are fantastic for that reason. Um, uh, you know, how do you give an 80, how do you give an 85 or a 95 to a wine? I mean, it's, it's pretty uh, subjective, uh, even when it's blind, and um, it's not accurate in the slightest. Um, even as, I mean, I've, I've rated thousands and thousands of wines as a, as a critic, and uh, I had good days and bad days. I knew it, but you had to, you had to go through the wines. I think, uh, in retrospect, um, I would rather review wines kind of in the old way, where you know what you're tasting, you know the story behind the wine, you're tasting, um, you're tasting the full picture, you're tasting what you understand to be the the inherent terroir that the wine comes from, the philosophy of the winemakers, and, and, and so you can, you can give an educated uh, opinion as opposed to a snap judgment, but that's not what we like as Americans. So it, it's good and bad. 
it, it's interesting to me that people rely on the Wine Spectator. People rely on Robert Parker. But it, it is interesting because when you said double-edged, it is at some level doing a disservice to the wine to just give it a score. But on the other hand, it's very valuable to the reader. Absolutely. Um, listen, and it also, the higher your score, the faster you move those boxes. I mean, I love getting, you know, rather get a 96 than an 86, I'll tell you that. But um, I, I think ultimately the answer for the American public is education and a cultural assimilation of, um, uh, of, of what we lost when our ancestors immigrate or emigrated from Europe and we lost our wine culture we're getting it back and you know I, I like to tell people that the best thing you can do is drink what you like and drink it more regularly and not in excess um, and I've you know all these cookbooks I've written ten cookbooks nine of them have food and wine pairings um, with every menu with every every recipe because for me a meal without a glass of wine is not really fully enjoyed. It's breakfast. Yeah, and breakfast is a you know a cappuccino for me. Yeah. You know, I'm still recovering <laughs> from the night before. <laughs> well, I'm a little guilty. I woke up with a wine flu this morning, thanks to you. Yeah. So, we'll, all right. Yeah. Um, now, you, we mentioned in the opening that you have a winery, an urban winery. Yes. And it's located in Berkeley, California. We have 9,000 square feet of winemaking heaven right in the center of Berkeley. Why? Because it was a lot cheaper to build a winery in Berkeley than it was to build it in St. Helena, Napa Valley. And I, uh, I also wanted uh, to... I was in Napa for 15 years, making Covenant there for 12 of those 15 years. You know, I, I wanted... To, my kids grew up. My kids grew up in St. Helena. They're, they're Napa kids, but they left... Um, one of my daughters works for me now at the, at the winery in, in, in Berkeley, and the others in the restaurant business. She uh, is the publicist for a, a restaurant group known as the French Laundry Restaurant Group. And, um, can I know, get a reservation? I can get you the reservation. Thank you. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, the kids left. Uh, I don't Have you ever watched The, the Grapes Grow? <laughs> it's really boring. <laughs> Even if you're working your butt off, and I didn't actually own my own vineyards in Napa. So, um, you know, I was, I, I work with a lot of growers that I've, I've known for years. And they're a terrific grower, grape growers, but I still have to, like, schlep my grapes at harvest from wherever I was picking them to wherever I was making my wine. And quite frankly, Berkeley is uh, 45 minutes south of Napa. It's the same south of Sonoma. It's uh, less than an hour from Lodi. The only real schlep is that I do get grapes from the Central Coast, and my wife, Jody, and I will drive those grapes up ourselves from Bienacito Vineyard and other vineyards oh, in, the, in the Santa Rita Hills. So, yeah. so that's, a, that's the biggest schlep. Our wines that we make in Israel, we make them in Israel. So, um, Oh, good. You're not schlepping not to schlepping, Berkeley. Yeah, I'm not schlepping my, my grapes from Israel to Berkeley. But um, I just, I wanted to, um, I, I'm a New York kid. I grew up in the city. I like the city. I saw an opportunity to uh, have a, the winery set up I wanted. Um, also, you mentioned, in fact, that you know my wines are kosher. Um, what does that mean? Very simply, it's about who touches the, the, the juice or the, or the uh, wine. The only requirement, and I'm saying this for your, all of your listeners, the only requirement for the wine to be kosher is that the juice or the grapes, and not the juice, the grapes, I'm not talking about, the juice or the wine 
In other words, something that you can drink from the grape and make kiddush with, which is the prayer over the wine, that needs to be handled or touched by Sabbath-observant Jews. What does that mean, Sabbath-observant? If you want a kosher certification, that means you only drink kosher wine, you only eat kosher food, and you don't drive or work on the Sabbath. So that's it. And um, my crew that was working with me up in Napa, my crew of one, Jonathan Haydu, who's been working with me for 20 years, he's a little more religious than I am. I'm not, you know, I, I'm affiliated with a, an Orthodox synagogue, but I'm not fully Shomer Shabbat. So Jonathan and I managed to work out how we would make Covenant when it was a thousand case production, but now we're at 8,000 cases. So I have three seller uh, cellar rats, so to speak, in the in the cellar, plus Jonathan, they all have to live in a um, a, a neighborhood where you have a, a, an Orthodox community, and that doesn't exist in the Napa Valley. So we've got that in Berkeley, and we've got that in Oakland. So everybody who works at, at Covenant lives in, in Berkeley or Oakland, and that makes everything a lot uh, a lot more uh, practical. Well, Jeff, you know, I'm going to maybe try to simplify this, and we could always edit it out if we need to, but it sounds to me like you're just making great wine. Well, you know, I'll second that emotion. Um, yes, uh, why Why am I doing this, you might wonder. How about asking me that question? Why do I make kosher wine? Huh. Well, Jeff, it has occurred to me that the question I want to ask you next is, why do you make kosher wine? <laughs> so, you know, I made a lot of... Uh, non-kosher wine before I started making Covenant and uh, I actually uh, when I left the Spectator in 2000 moved to Napa I started my own brand called Solo Rosa we only made rosé and I was one of the guys I was probably the only person except for my partner Daniel Moore at the time who um, who only made rosé that was the thing because I'd lived in the south of France all those years I loved rosé and I thought, let's just do rosé. And uh, I wrote a book about rosé. I wrote the first book on rosé in, in, in the English language, actually, and um, at least in the modern English language. And um, we had a winemaker, um, a winemaker tasting group in the Napa Valley uh, with Leslie Rudd, who's a nice Jewish boy from Wichita, and, and there were all sorts of, you know, Bob Levy, Harlan, he's Jewish. I mean, Daniel Barron, at the time he was making uh, Silver Oak. Silver Oak, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of us. There are a lot of Jews making not kosher wine in the Napa Valley. And it's, it's kind of irrelevant that we should be Jewish. But we had a little tasting group called the Jewish Vintners. And um, we invited a, an Israeli winemaker named Eli Ben Zaken from Domaine du Castel. To, he was visiting San Francisco. We invited him up to, to taste uh, so we could taste his wine. Uh, from Israel, and uh, he had a Bordeaux blend that was absolutely delicious. And Leslie looked at me and he goes, "Gee, that was better than the Manischewitz I grew up with." And I said, "Well, Les, yeah, it's real wine. It's not Manischewitz. It's not Concord grape wine. It's like vinifera, really well made." And then we both kind of looked at each other and we thought, you know, maybe we could make like a great kosher Napa Valley Cabernet. You know, one as good as the as the Rudd not kosher Cabernet. And I said, yeah, why don't you give me 10 tons of rug grapes and I'll make the greatest kosher wine in 5,000 years. And he said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> he said, why don't you screw it up? It's going to be the worst kosher wine in 5,000 years from Rudd Vineyard. But he liked the idea. And I, he had the money to get started. I didn't. So he said, look, why don't you find another vineyard and I'll be, we'll be partners. I'll, I'll, I'll back you to get started. And so I found a parcel over at the Larkmead Vineyard 
which had actually been going into rud before rud's uh, vines were mature. And I asked the owner if I could buy his grapes. And so the first eight or nine vintages of Covenant were actually, Covenant Cabernet were from Larkmead. And uh, when I finally left, my block became their best block, which obviously... Obviously. Yes. So um, so anyway, so it was... It was um, that's how we kind of got started. The funny, the great irony is that, that Castell wine, Castell is now a kosher winery, but back in 2002 when we tasted it, it wasn't kosher. You're kidding. But we assumed it was kosher because it was from Israel. So <laughs> we clueless American Jews didn't know anything about Israeli wine, and we, uh, we started this quest to make the great American kosher wine based on a fallacy. Well, it sounds to me like this whole project started part out of curiosity and part on a dare. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was definitely a bit of a dare. And I really didn't want to make kosher wine. I was totally not interested. No bar mitzvah, no nothing. But I realized I could. I really wanted to make more than just rosé. And I, I knew that I couldn't, I didn't have enough money to even get started, even to think about Napa Valley Cabernet. This was my shot, and I, I took it. Now, why did I know that we could make good, not a, a good kosher wine? Because 10 years earlier, in uh, 1992, I got the call from Tom Matthews at the Wine Spectator, who uh, had reviewed my New York wines uh, favorably. The ones I, I mean, they weren't mine, but I had helped right. make the, these really good Long Island wines. We were the first winery to get to break the 90 uh, uh, limit in, in Wine Spectator from Long Island. And he saw an article I'd written uh, in the in the uh, New York Times about uh, how did I become a writer? That's another story. But you know, I just bullshit my way in there and got this huge spread in the New York Times on Long Island wineries. Tom calls and he says, "Are you the same Jeff Morgan that was making the Christina wines that we reviewed so highly?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, we didn't know you were a wine writer." And I said, "Well, I wasn't two years ago when I was making wine, but now I am." And um, he said, well, we have a story for you, possibly, at the Wine Spectator. And I said, are you kidding? The Wine Spectator? My Bible? They're my calling wine? me? They're calling me? I can't believe it. I said, Tom, what? Anything. I'm ready. And he goes, well, we'd like you to write about kosher wine for Passover. What? Wow. So, <laughs> really? <laughs> I, I, my, my first response was, you're joking, right? <laughs> and he said, no, why? And I said, well... <laughs> I've never had a good kosher wine. In fact, I know nothing about kosher wine. And he goes, but you're Jewish, right? Because 30 years ago, you could say things like that to people, right? I said, yeah. I said, I'm Jewish, but like no bar mitzvah, no Jewish education, no nothing. I, I don't know anything. He said, well, listen, last year we had a non-Jew write the story, and we were accused of anti-Semitism. So we'd like to avoid that this year. You can say whatever you want, right? Whatever you want. We're good with that. Oh, my God. But, you know, at least we're, we're covered. He, <laughs> oh said, he said, this is your foot in the door, Jeff, at the Spectator. You take it or leave it. Oh, wow. So I took it. And um, I still have that article, my first article in Wine Spectator. It came out in March, the March issue, 1992. It's like a five-page spread with big photos. And, and I actually read it recently. I got most everything right, <laughs> to my credit. <laughs> And <laughs> since I knew nothing when I started. And um, one thing I learned writing about that is what I just explained is that to, to, to keep a wine, all wine is inherently kosher. To keep it kosher, it needs to be handled only by those Sabbath observant Jews. Right. You don't have to boil it. You don't have to do anything uh, except 
make sure that the right people touch it in the cellar. So I knew that if I could find those religious hands to help me with my wine, we could keep the wine kosher. We'd have my wines are all native yeast fermented. My my better red wines uh, and white wines are not filtered. They're not fined. I'm a you know I'm making wine just the way I would make it were it not kosher. And I have to say I have to give a little credit to uh, to David Ramey, who is one of my best buddies. Um, but he also back in the day he introduced me to Leslie Rudd when he was Leslie's winemaker. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. When I started this program, <clears throat> okay, I made wine in Long Island, I made rosé. I had no idea how to make an Apple Valley Cabernet. And I said, Dave, can you help me out? And he said, yeah. And Dave really showed me how to make wine. That is awesome. You're making me very thirsty, but I've got two more questions to ask you before we get into the uh, or my favorite part of the podcast. You're making wine from fruit from far and wide in California. You, you're down in the Central Coast, you're over in Lodi, you're in Napa. Uh, I think we mentioned the Lake, uh, Lake County. County yeah. What is it about these different sites that you're pulling these fruit from all over California for your wines? Well, the first and foremost, they're different price points for the grapes. So okay. when I started in Napa with Napa Valley Cabernet, I still had to buy my grapes. Even the, and for a while, I was buying them from Leslie. Also, eventually, he did let me um, he let me make wine from his own vineyard, and, and we actually call that wine Solomon Lot Seventy. That's our upper upper echelon Cabernet. But um, you know, I started with Cabernet from Napa, but I wanted to grow, and I, I couldn't keep paying super high prices for all of my grapes because I wanted a, a broader spectrum of price points in my portfolio. So, for example, um, uh, the grapes in Sonoma cost about half of what the the Cabernet from Napa costs. Just market. It's not like they're half as good or it's not like Cab- Napa is twice as good. It's just, it's like real estate on Fifth Avenue versus real estate on, uh, I don't know, First Avenue or whatever. Uh, from Lodi, I get extraordinarily good grapes at a much lower price point, which allows me to have um, $20 and $30 wines in my portfolio. My, my, my Napa Cabernet retails for $120 and $200 a bottle, so that's a lot of that has to do with just the cost of grapes. So as many of you know, in 2020, we had some pretty bad fires in yeah. Northern California. And um, I was concerned about my grapes. Uh, just through dumb luck, I picked all my Cabernet uh, the day before. Well, most of it, not all of it. Most of my Cabernet I picked the day before the glass fire broke out in Napa Valley. Wow. So uh, I did lose one vineyard uh, that was in Pope Valley that uh, it was impossible to get to in time, and those grapes were ruined. But I'd say two-thirds of my grapes were fine from Napa. Um, but I was anticipating some issues in Sonoma as well, and I thought uh, I, I, I need to look around and maybe explore Southern California, which so far hadn't had any fires in 2020. You know, thanks to my days at Wine Spectator, I mean, I know a lot of people. So um, I called some of my good friends uh, who were vintners down there, and I said, look, does anybody have any um, Syrah? I needed I needed Syrah. I make a, a number of different Syrahs in California, and uh, all my grapes were up in Sonoma. So I said, uh, I need something in, in, in the Central Coast, and I was able to find a, a 0.7 acre parcel at uh, at Bienacito, oh, yeah. which um, for uh, which is provided me with some extraordinary Syrah. And we bottled a, a, a our first we bottled the 2020 last year 
a whopping 100 cases or 95 cases of it, but it's did very well in uh, the wine advocate actually. <laughs> and uh, I have a, I've made wine from those grapes now for three years. And I also found another vineyard in the Santa Rita Hills, which is uh, not too far from Santa Maria, where Bienacito huh? is located, but completely different terroir. And we've made some really, really great uh, Syrah from down there. So I'm still making uh, wines from the vineyards that I source from in Northern California that were compromised in 2020. But I don't want to let go of these fantastic vineyards in the Central Coast. So, yeah. And then uh, in Israel, it's a real simple story. Leslie and I decided in 2011 to go visit uh, Israel. We, had, we were pretty well known for our kosher wine, <laughs> oddly enough, but we didn't really know Israel. So I took a, you know, we went, went up to the Galilee, and I looked around and realized that it looked just like the, the Rhone Valley in France. You know, lots and lots of limestone and uh, terra rosa soils, and I thought, I want to make Rhone varietals here. So uh, I made my first Syrah in Israel in 2013, and then I made, uh, started making Viognier a few years later from a vineyard right on the Lebanese border. I do think I make a, uh, I've made a rosé from uh, Carignan grapes uh, also. Oh, wow. Uh, Israel is very Rhone-like, and I'm very pleased with uh, what we've done there. Well you, well, you certainly have a huge palette of different terroir yeah. that you're making wines from. That is just, and now I am very, very thirsty, and we're coming to my very favorite part of the podcast, what's in your glass. But before we start, you had mentioned that you started your career as a saxophonist. Yeah. So I just want to say that before we try your wines, remember, no sax before a flight. Okay, touche. <laughs> <laughs> touche, Scott. I remember that. Uh, so. I, uh, well, you know. Take me through this beautiful first wine. I'm the aromatics on this. So, wow. So we're drinking um, the Covenant Red Sea Viognier, actually from Lodi. Um, last night we enjoyed a dinner together where we drank my Israeli Viognier. In 2022, I didn't make any Viognier for numerous reasons uh, in Israel, but I love it. I love Viognier. And so I thought, well, maybe I can make one. Um, in California. Uh, I knew that there was some Viognier growing in front of the Mettler family's tasting room uh, in Lodi, and I asked them if I could have some of their grapes, and they said, yeah. Lovely family, by the they way. Are. They terrific. are. They are a lovely family. So um, so we picked the grapes. Uh, they were my first pick as harvest of uh, um, 2022, early August. Uh, picked the grapes, brought them into the winery, uh, pressed the juice, put the juice in neutral oak barrels, and let it go with native yeast. And this is what came out. It's actually quite similar to my Israeli Viognier, although I think it's um, it's got a little more of a fruit-forward mm. quality, but uh, I'm surprised at how much they resemble each although other. Although the aromatics are different. A little. From, from well, last so. night's, yeah, no, from the Israeli yeah. Viognier to this. I mean, this has got a little bit more of a gardenia lift. Uh, for me in the nose, um, which I adore, by the way, in, in Viognier. I think people should drink more Riesling. I think they should drink more Viognier. I agree. Um, this is this is lovely. Uh, and the fruit, again, from Lodi. This is, um, I make this kind of like I made my rosé back in the day when I had Sola Rosa. And I learned how to do that back in Long Island. You know, we, we had a, mm. some excess Merlot bleed. We threw it in some barrels, and uh, after harvest was over, it turned into beautiful rosé. So that's kind of way I make a lot of my whites. Um, uh, I Juice goes into neutral oak, 
to kind of highlight what's varietal aspects of the wine. No ML bottled this about a month ago, month and a half ago, and uh, I only made 150 cases of it, and we're bringing some here to Utah, but most of it's going to be sold, I think, in California, direct. What's beautiful and what I love about it is not just the fruit, but the integration of the acidity with the fruit. It's really got me in the mid-cheeks, yeah, and, and it's staying with me. I mean, this is a long, long, long finish and you know, for a Viognier. This is Lodi Viognier. I don't believe I had to add any acid to this at all. Oh. I mean, this is just natural acidity, picked early, and just bright and fresh. So I'm going to keep making Viognier from Lodi. Please. Because Please. I just love it. You know? Okay, so, you know, Cook MacArthur, CIA-trained guy, lecturer. What, Jeff, what would you uh, pair this with? Well, when I think about food and wine pairings, I really try to simplify. I think about the style of the wine and the characteristics on my plate. And so if you can say, uh, this wine is bright and fresh, lively on the palate, then you probably want something that's a little lighter and fresher on your plate. Or that would be what we call a complementary pairing. Right. But then you could also go the opposite. You could have contrary flavors that would balance each other out, like each other out, such as the acidity, the natural acidity in the wine that might um, round out uh, a richness uh, uh, on your plate. And so I'm thinking grilled sardines. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> right the big Mediterranean sardines, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I love grilled sardines. And they're kind of oily and salty. And you have those with this wine, and wow, that is a perfect match. But, you know, you can also do... I have a, I have a recipe for, in, in, in uh, my, late, my, my last book, The Covenant Kitchen, Food and Wine for the New Jewish Table. And it's... Um, it's a, um, a pasta made with fresh rosemary mm. and lemons. So it's rosemary lemon pasta. And um, that, as you can imagine, is a very bright and fresh pasta, and it goes also equally good with, 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 this, uh, with this wine. I, I would go old school with this. All I can think of right now is roast chicken. I would uh, love this with a roast chicken. Well, Chicken is the rosé of foods. It goes with everything. Yeah, but you know, just a good roast chicken, maybe with, you know, roasted with a little bit of a lemon rub on it. This yeah. would just be. All right, I stick a, a whole lemon, usually a lemon from my backyard yeah. in Berkeley. I stick it right in the cavity of yeah, the bird same. And, and roast That's, it. Uh, how I roast my chicken. Yeah. And this would go great with something like yeah. that. All right, well, let's, uh, let's jump into wine number two. Holy schmoly. Holy schmoly. Holy schmoly. Well, I think we drank this last night, didn't we? This is absolutely lovely. Red, obviously. Mm. Beautiful nose. Very lovely. Well, it's Syrah. So, it's not that lovely. It is lovely. <laughs> anyway, I, I will disagree. It is lovely. You know, it's, um, it's a Syrah sourced predominantly from one vineyard in the Galilee. This is Covenant Israel Syrah 2018. So this is from Israel? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. So this is Covenant Israel Syrah. She, you know, we had the bottle before we had to move into another room to finish this recording. <laughs> and it was sitting in front of us, yes. So this is not the Biennacito. This is the, this mm. is the Tzivon Vineyard mm. in, uh, in, uh, in Israel, uh, in the Galilee. There's a little bit of, uh, uh, of Golan Syrah also in it from... Um, from another vineyard owned by a guy named Danny Maor. And um, again, like all my wines, native mm. yeast fermented, natural ML on this. It's about, as I recall, it's maybe about 40% new oak, all French oak. 
uh, unfined, unfiltered, and um, I think it's pretty delicious also. It is really delicious. Yeah. You know, these beautiful lifted notes, uh, again, you're getting kind of an interesting combination for me of red and black fruit in here. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I hate using the traditional descriptors, but, you know, this is, what I really love about this is the texture in my mouth. When I put it in there, it fills up my entire mouth from the palate front to back, uh, and that's a real treat. Well, I'm glad that you noticed that. You know, we um, all of my red wines are um, are somewhat supple because we um, use gentle winemaking techniques that I learned from David Ramey mostly, and a little bit from Michelle Rond as well. We try not to work too hard to extract uh, flavor, color, tannin because mm. it naturally emerges from from uh, the grapes that uh, that we pick. So it's it's a cool, gentle ferment. It takes about two or three weeks. And, um, mm. and we don't typically put any of the compressed wine in. So um, we just, uh, we're looking for a, a firm, but nonetheless velvety uh, texture on the palate. I hope this comes out as a compliment for which I mean it to be. Mm. But this wine for me is like a beautiful northern Rhone Syrah, but more supple, more approachable. And and that's not to, to say that northern Rhone Syrahs aren't, uh, they're, they're beautiful wines, but for some reason this feels, you said supple, Yeah. I, I want to say sexy, if that's a word you could use for Syrah. I, I think any good, any good wine is a sexy wine, but yeah, well thank you, I, you know, I think the, the greatest difference between the Rhone uh, Syrahs and then the Syrahs I produce in Israel and also the ones I produce in, in California, is that while... Israel's not as hot as you would think. These are these are high altitude vineyards, um, and certainly in California, I also am usually using mountaintop vineyards um, or coastal vineyards. We we tend to get, I think, we must get uh, just more heat uh, during the growing season because uh, our tannins are are, are are more supple. They just they they tend to be, and so. Uh, listen, I, lo I love Rhone wines and I love Rhone Syrahs and drink as many of them as I can, but they, they just take a little longer to round out, whereas yeah. ours seem to... Yeah. You know, people, like, they'll come to visit me at the winery and I'll taste them on a wine that's just finished fermenting and they'll go, wow, like, it already tastes good. And I said, well, that's a good sign. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's about temperature and, and maybe in our, in our fermentation techniques, which are not particularly complex, uh, but I, I, I think that's what gives... Our red wines, both from Israel and from California, a suppleness that I don't find in the European wines that I love and drink. Mm -hmm. These tannins are so well integrated right now. Really, just so well integrated. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I love it. Can you just remind our listeners the two wines we just tried? So we just drank Covenant Red Sea Viognier 2022 Vintage from Lodi, from the Mettler Vineyard in Lodi. I don't know what the cost is uh, nationally, but in California, it's about a $28 wine. Wow. So it's a pretty good deal. Wow. Yeah. Only made 150 cases of it, but I'll make more next year. Okay. Please and then, do. And then we also were drinking the Covenant Israel Syrah 2018 vintage. That is mostly uh, from a vineyard in the Galilee called Sivon. By the way, it's a biodynamic vineyard also. Oh, oh wow. Okay. And, uh, and uh, with a little bit of Syrah also from the Golan Heights. Um, and that is, uh, retails for, I think, 72 or $75, right around there. 
And is it available? I mean, yeah. 2018, it's still it's, available? This is the current vintage. Okay. Hopefully these are current okay. vintages that we're selling. Right. You know, we talked earlier about my uh, Bienacido Syrah. That's the 2020 vintage right now. I, I, we tasted um, these together at a dinner t- last night. It was really interesting to, to compare the style and the flavors of these two Syrahs made with the same methodology, but different vintages and way different, you know, yeah. locations. Yeah. And so... And last night I was at a table of eight, and four people preferred the Israeli Syrah, four people preferred the California Syrah, but all eight of us drank all of it. Well, that's a good sign. <laughs> usually usually I, I determine what my favorite wine of the night is by, you know, which glass empties first. And, uh, and all of our glasses were empty last <laughs> well, I'm night. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Jeff, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast today. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and tell your story and taste a few wines with me. Well, thank you, Scott, for having me on the show. Much appreciated. And uh, I hope to share more fabulous food and wine evenings with you again in the future. That would be my pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of The Vine Guide. 